Welcome. You are about to enter the Wooniverse. In five, four, three, two, one. Transport complete. Come inside a mystical, magical portal between worlds. It delivers with so much generosity everything that you've made at this deep soul level. Where playful curiosity leads the way and beyond. You really see it and feel it with the rise of the light worker, the rise of power to connect with the universe. You won't believe the ahas that come up in every single conversation. Homo luminous, what the shamans call it, the new human that's being born in the planet today. I can't wait to explore this enchanting space with you. Anyone listening to this show is a spirit junkie. <laughs> you are a spirit junkie if you're listening. If you are wooing out with us, you are a spirit junkie. Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast coming to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. Hi there, and welcome to Inside the Wooniverse. I'm your host, Colette Baron reed Joining us today is the most amazing Alberto Villaldo. Alberto is a medical anthropologist, psychologist, and shaman who studied the spiritual practices of the Amazon and the Andes for more than 30 years. While at San Francisco State University, he founded the Biological Self-Regulation Laboratory to study how the mind creates psychosomatic health and disease. He's the founder of the Four Winds Society and has written numerous best-selling books, like too many to talk about, including Power Up Your Brain, The Neuroscience of Enlightenment, Shaman, Healer, Sage, One Spirit Medicine, and more. Welcome, Alberto. Good to be with you, Colette. It's always fun to be with you. Oh, I love you so much. And you and I created two Oracle card decks together, so we've known each other for a number of years. But I want to go back to the very beginning of your journey because I think, you know, people know who you are now. You're very famous. I mean, you've impacted millions of people around the world, but I guess a lot of people don't know how you began. So can we start with where you were born and raised and how you got on the journey to be become a shaman, medical anthropologist, and psychologist? It was all a series of well-intentioned accidents. So one seems to end up where destiny takes you. And for me, I was really lost as a graduate student. And then I began to study by accident the shamanic healing practices because it turns out that my great-grandmother was a healer, was a folk healer. Mm -hmm. And this was right at the intersection of Western technology and ancient folk traditions in Cuba. I was born and raised in Cuba. And whenever I got sick, the doctor, they still made home visits, would leave tablets and pills, and she would flush them down the toilet every day <laughs> and give me her herbal remedies and her songs and her chants. And she would say to me, Alberto, the only way to get healthy is to connect and have the blessings of the spirit world. And I thought she was just an old woman that was full of... And I've discovered that she was absolutely right that you need that communion with the spirit world because we're spirit beings, we're energy beings. We need that energetic connection and communion with the spirit world and with nature. And without it, we get sick. That's when we get sick. So how did you get to the medical anthropology piece? Because you're a real scientist outside of the fact that you're deeply spiritual and you've studied all these spiritual traditions. You also have the scientific piece. You know, I was interested in the brain, and I wrote a couple books on the brain, but I was interested in how does the brain create psychosomatic health? 
I mean, we know that we create psychosomatic disease, but how can we create psychosomatic health? And I was at a friend's house a couple of months ago, using the bathroom, washing my hands, and the medicine cabinet was opening, and I saw a pack of Viagra. And I opened the package and I took the insert, the disclaimer, and I read, well, this medication can cause senility, heart disease, a four-day-long penile erection, which you should go to the ER about, and talk about the, the nocebo <laughs> effect, the negative placebo. Who wants to have sex after reading all of that stuff? Because we're getting programmed, programmed for disease. So the mind is incredibly powerful. It can heal you or it can kill you. And I was interested in my youth when I was a graduate student and later directed the self-regulation laboratory and how the mind and the brain could create psychosomatic health. And I discovered that we didn't know how to do it. So I shut down my lab after two years, a small neuroscience lab at San Francisco State. And I went to the Amazon to work with the men and women that had the power of the mind and didn't have MRIs and didn't have x-rays or 100 different diagnostic categories. They only had one illness and one cure, whereas we had thousands of illnesses and thousands of remedies. And with them, I discovered that illnesses do not exist and that the only illness is the disconnection from your true nature and from nature and from spirit. That's amazing. And this is the medicine that I learned in working with the shamans in the Amazon and eventually becoming becoming a shaman. You've been there 30 years. There's a lot of stories in those 30 years to share about that connection and disconnection of the spirit world. Is this the type of indigenous wisdom that you learned? You know, I kept one foot in the world of science, but I was so fascinated with the ancient wisdom teachings. And that's my next book. It's called The Wisdom Wheel the wisdom teachings of the ancients, of the Americas, of the shamans, and how, you know, our mythology in the West says that we were punished for tasting that fruit of the tree of knowledge. Whereas the indigenous people say, hey, you had one bite, go back and eat all of that, all the apples in that tree. <laughs> steep in wisdom, steep in knowledge. But as an anthropologist, you learn that if you want to discover what the beliefs of a people are, you know, if you're deep in the Amazon, I would be going in canoes to communities that had never seen a light-skinned person before. And the kids would come running and try to rub my skin to see if the white dirt would rub off. And the first thing you ask them is, tell me your story of creation. How was your world created, your story of origin? And they would tell you their myth of creation. And that has all of the information about the beliefs of that society. And then I started looking at our story of creation, where on the seventh day, all of creation was complete. And all that was left was the naming of the plants and the animals. And that's what science believes, that all creation is complete. And all that was left is the naming of the laws of physics. But then in page one of our story, there's a very important thing that happens. We are given the fruit of the tree of wisdom. The, the woman is given the fruit. The, the guy was too busy watching the football game. <laughs> Eve is offered the fruit and she partakes of the fruit of wisdom and then offers it to Adam. And then the next day, God comes through the garden and he can't find Adam and Eve. And he sees that they're hiding behind the bushes and asks them, why are you hiding? And the man says, because we are ashamed, because we are naked. So this is the very first 
feeling, emotion that our people feel is shame. And this is what we have to heal today to reown our bodies, reown our connection to nature, and rediscover our communion with God, with spirit. But Adam says, I am ashamed. And ashamed doesn't mean you did something bad. That's guilt. Ashamed means that you are bad, that you're not a good person, that you're not good enough, that you don't deserve, that you don't deserve love or laughter or joy. You don't deserve it. And this is embedded in our Western, masculine, patriarchal story of origin. And this is what I discovered we have to heal in order to avoid getting the cancers and the dementias and the heart disease that jungle peoples don't have. And all the research now is focused on, well, how did these people eat differently from us? And of course, they ate natural, organic, and they pooped about a kilo and a half, about three pounds of poop a day because they ate a lot of fiber versus our half a pound of poop where we don't eat any fiber. But we know the nutrition or the dietary angle. But the reason that they don't get the illnesses that we get is because they have healed the story of shame. They belong, we deserve, we are deserving of beauty and bliss and joy. It's your birthright. And if you can make that mindset, then healing becomes spontaneous. So we are describing that monotheistic concept of really we were talking about what was in the Bible, pretty much the creation story about Adam and Eve, et cetera, and the shame. So let me ask you, what did you discover about the indigenous people of the Amazon? It's really what I'm curious about, because if they are born within a creation where shame doesn't exist, or are they? You didn't really go into too much about their creation story. You know, the, the creation story of the indigenous people has been rewritten after the conquest of the West. So what they have to heal is this incredible conquest and destruction of their people and decimation. It's just the same way as the mythology of Tibet has to now heal the relationship with the Chinese. So the mythology is evolving. And here the world of the indigenous people was devastated, destroyed, the end of their world. And a new world was born with a new story of creation that has to do with being in bondage and slavery. And that's the healing and the forgiveness of the conquistador. See, for the indigenous person, what they have to do is to bury the sword of the conquest so that they don't resort to violence against the conquistador because the conquistador is within them. It's been internalized. So the indigenous people have their own healing to do. But for us, we need to heal that sense of not belonging in the garden. And we heal it by returning to nature, by becoming one with the rivers and the trees and the woods. I think it's really important what you just described. And you've illustrated something that I that makes a lot of sense because the original sense of belonging and being part of nature and being joyful and worthy and all of those things then got replaced out of trauma. So I think, and tell me if this is correct, that what you teach right now and that what you're bringing forward is a way that speaks to a collective trauma. And we're learning as well to be able to take some of that ancient wisdom and bring it into our lives. Would you say that's true? You know, the the collective trauma expresses itself through each one of us with our own families with it's an archetypal drama so for example there's the great archetype the ancient types the mother is a great archetype 
But we each have an individual mother, an individual expression of that. We each have an individual expression of this being cast out of the garden. Now, psychologists call it birth trauma because you're cast out of the womb. But it begins even before birth. When you have a family, for example, that the mother maybe is not sure that her partner will look after her and her baby. So you are born into a world where the universe will not look after you. Whereas if you're born into the garden, into paradise, you know you have everything you need. It's abundant. It's not missing anything. And you have all of the love and all the nurturance, regardless of where you are, whether you're parented by a really great mother or you're parented by a village where you have 20 mothers, which is more common in other societies. So let me ask you this. Does this make sense then, just when you were talking about this, about fate and destiny? Because you talk a lot about fate and destiny. So would you say that the birth trauma or birth alone is the fate? Tell me how those two interact in your philosophy. (laughs) Yeah. Let me give you an example. Today we think, we believe that your genes are your fate. And your fate is preordained, is preselected by your genetics, by your family stories, by your birth trauma, by that first love affair that was terrible, that your fate is preordained. Destiny, you get to select. You get to write your own story, create your own map to navigate through this amazing life. And if your map has been written by trauma, that's fate. Fate is fatal, is deadly. Whereas destiny, even if it's difficult and challenging, you feel empowered to navigate through it. You feel empowered to leave, the, to leave very challenging childhood experiences or marital experiences to become a person that has beauty to give to the world. You're not disempowered. Now, what happens when we experience trauma is that our destiny is derailed and we come into the grip of fate. And what the shamans do is to help you recover your destiny by doing a kind of soul recovery, of soul retrieval, where you call that soul part back that fled because it was too painful for it to remain behind. We're stepping into the shamanic mythology here, but... Which is great because it's part of what you teach. It's something that's very much a part of who you are and what you offer people, and it's a beautiful thing. So let's talk a little bit about where you're heading right now with your work. You have this new book coming out, and it is a blend of two, right? So there's definitely your scientific history there. You've got this real great wisdom and knowledge, and you're bringing this shamanic concepts, this ancient wisdom, and the two of them somehow intersect in there. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. It's called The Wisdom Wheel, and it's bringing together the shamanic wisdom of the Americas with the wisdom of the Himalayas. Because remember that we all came from that part of the world. There's an interesting field of archaeology today called molecular archaeology, where researchers are able to trace back the DNA of your mitochondria that comes only from your mother's side. You don't inherit your father's mitochondria. Able to trace that back to a single mitochondrial Eve, our great-great-grandmother of us all that lived in Africa 85,000 years ago. And then, because of climate change and other crises, began to migrate northward and settled at the foothills of the Himalayas for 10,000 years. And this is where all of the wisdom teachings were forged that later, many thousands of years later, you know, 50,000 years ago, they went to Australia, began to make their way to the Americas and into Europe. But they all germinated. They all have this common origin. 
And of course, these shamanic traditions became the basis of religion. They became institutionalized as soon as you have agriculture. So shamanism begins to disappear with agriculture. With the coming of agriculture, you stop eating plants. So there are 50,000 edible plants in Mother Earth, but with the coming of agriculture eight to 10,000 years ago, we only eat three. And neither, none of them are green. We eat corn, we eat rice, and we eat wheat. And these are the plants that feed humanity today and that are causing us so much trouble because of wheat allergies that we have and gluten intolerances and corn turns into sugar and so does rice and diabetes and obesity. So, but this is the foundation of religion. And I remember as a young boy learning the Lord's Prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer, our sure. Father who art, give us this day our daily fats and proteins, right? Right, <laughs> give us our day our daily bread, right? <laughs> so it becomes embedded. If you go to the Orient, you find that the Buddhists offered rice. If you go to the Americas, we're the people of the corn. The corn is the mother, according to the Hopi. So suddenly these three crops become monoculture and we begin to get sick. And at the same time that you have agriculture, you have the discovery of warfare, because the shamans were nomadic peoples. For them, the land didn't have any value. But if you're a farmer, the land is, your, is valuable to you. And you've got to protect it from your neighbors that want your fertile land. So you have the farmer becoming the warrior. Mm-hmm. And then Switzerland is still that way. Everybody in Switzerland, every male has a weapon that they take home. They're part of a citizen army, a farmer's army. So this is the origin of war, the origin of agriculture, and the origin of religion. And if you dig into the archeological record more than 10,000 years ago, you find that there's no warfare anywhere. Mm -hmm. That people lived in peace. And the minute that you begin to eat sugars and you begin to eat grains and gluten, you have the origin of warfare and you have the origin of the Western illnesses of today. So in your new book, if you look at, you talk about it being a wheel. Do you want to just briefly run through the wheel? Because what you're describing right now gives us an understanding of where we come from and how a lot of our problems, you know, certainly through diet, you know, nutrition, et cetera, but the nutrition of the spirit is also really key. And I believe that's in your new book. Yeah, you know, the notion of a wheel is found in every culture. You find it in the Himalayas as a mandala, as the wheel of time, the, uh, the Kali Yuga. Kali is the goddess of time and the goddess of renewal. So this is the mythology of people who understand that time turns like a wheel and that things tend to repeat themselves. I have a friend of mine that invited me to his wedding and it was his fifth wedding. And I said to him, do you remember what you asked me to do to you if you ever even looked at a woman again? And he said, but Alberto, it's different this time. And he invited me to marry them and I refused, so he uninvited me. And six months (laughs) later, he calls me and says, why did you let me do it? Because he was trying to heal it through the next lover, the next marriage, the next partner. And I said to him, you have to stop looking for the right partner and work on becoming the right partner. Mm -hmm. So we break out of this cyclical activity. This is what karma is, these cycles of repeating toxic and futile behaviors in the hopes that we'll get a different outcome. 
Mm-hmm. So this is the definition of craziness. <laughs> yes, that is craziness. And I know people have really had a challenging time breaking from these cycles, but this is why your work in bringing ancient wisdom of the past to the forefront is so important. We need to take a little break, but when we come back, let's dive into your work a little more. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back inside the Wooniverse. We're here with Alberto Villaldo. Alberto, I'd love to continue our conversation on breaking the wheel of karma. I want to talk about hope because I think part of breaking through the negativity loops, both on an individual level and a collective level, is hope. Alberto, what is your hope for humanity and what does that look like to you? Well, The wisdom wheel is about hope and it's about empowerment. And it says that in order to become empowered and develop your capabilities as a human and as an earth keeper, as a steward of the garden, a keeper of the garden and not a pillager, that you have to awaken to your highest possibilities. And this is wisdom. We learned with Darwin that it was the survival of the fittest and the stronger and the one with the most muscles and the most teeth But in reality, it's the survival of the wisest and the most collaborative. And this is what humanity is discovering in our corporate governance and the ways that we invest our time and our money and our energy, that the most successful organisms are are collaborative. They're symbiotic, not parasitic. So the book is about hope. It's about awakening latent possibilities. They're like seeds that are only watered with the water of wisdom. Only wisdom, only knowledge can wake up these deep seeds, just like it was offered to us when we were in the garden and we turned away from that tree of knowledge. But the promise is, in our mythology, to go back to the garden, the tree of wisdom was protected by the serpent. It was coiled around the tree. And its job, the job of the serpent, was to offer of the fruit. Of course, we demonized the serpent later, but it it was only doing its job. In every other culture, you welcome that serpent energy. In the East is the Kundalini, the awakening of the Kundalini. Even in the caduceus of Western medicine, there's a serpent coiled around the staff, the symbol of healing. A serpent was doing its job. And if we go back and take that fruit, then we're offered the fruit of the second tree, You've got to go back to the mythology. Page three says that as we're being cast out of the garden, the voice says to Adam, and with the sweat of your back, you will take your fruit from the earth and to Eve, and in pain you shall bear children. And the voice then says, and now before you eat of the fruit of the second tree of life everlasting and become as one of us, out. Very interesting quote here. And just to add something to this, Colette, if you look at the 40 million species in the planet, there are only three species, only three, humans, orcas, dolphins, whales, that don't have a death program in their DNA. All the other 39.99 million have a death program. There are no grandmothers in nature. There's no menopause in nature. They're grandmother orcas that teach the young grandmother humans. We don't have a death program. We're programmed for immortality, for infinity. And that's the fruit of the second tree that's available to us today. But we've got to set our sights really high 
So we're not just working on our mommy or daddy or scarcity issues. We have to work on becoming extraordinary humans. Homo luminous, what the shamans call it, the new human that's being born in the planet today. This is beautiful. So I think, would you say this is how we turn fate into destiny? Yep. And not just your destiny to become a writer or corporate person or CEO, but your destiny as a human, your human destiny to become an extraordinary human. Otherwise, if you don't take the opportunity, you're going to revert back to fate. And that's your genetics, the way your mother and your father got sick and your grandparents died. And you don't want that. No, definitely not. So what are some of the new aspects of the human luminous? Well, one of the traits, you know, we're having a big issue with uh, viruses today. Viruses have always been around, but the way the immune system learns is by getting exposed to a pathogen. It's by getting sick. You never get the same flu twice. But it's possible that this new human is going to be able to learn directly through the electromagnetic field and get the codes to develop immunity before getting exposure. Now, this is already happening today. Wow, that is fascinating. Tell me a little bit about the field and your experience with it. Have you ever had a, like a really wild experience yourself personally? Oh, yeah, yeah. Part of my shamanic training was to perceive the field, the energy field around the body, and to see how, in effect, we are energy that has this body that it builds and rebuilds. And if you can upgrade the information, it's an information field. Energy is information. And there are different kinds of energy. For example, heat is a really stupid kind of energy. You cannot use heat other than to warm yourself. But electricity is really intelligent. You could use it for lighting, for heating, for running your computer. So the higher the intelligence of your energy, the information, the healthier your body becomes. And the more you develop these traits that are the extraordinary human traits, immunity, uh, ability to see energy fields, the ability to perceive information at a distance, because we're all interconnected in the field. You know, we have extraordinary capabilities of, of knowing what's true from what seems to be true, but it's really a lie. <laughs> it's hard to tell these apart these days. What was it like for you when you first perceived the field? Oh, it was crazy because I couldn't turn it off. I remember getting in a taxi one time with one of our teaching staff. What I do today is to train modern shamans. But So we were coming back from a training, took a cab in uh, Miami, going to the hotel we were going to be staying at. And I turned to the driver and I said, I'm sorry that you were hurt so much as a little boy. Because it was just in his field. I could see it. And it was so crazy. This man reached down, pulled out a gun. Oh. And he beamed it towards the ceiling and he said, get out, get out of my taxi. Here we get out of, out of the taxi in the middle of Miami airport, with their, <laughs> the highway. I had to learn to shut this down. One time I was being interviewed for a TV program and the interviewer asked me the same question. We were inside the airport at the American Airlines lounge. The interviewer asked me, and I said, okay, here, let me hold you inside my field. And I held her inside my field. And I said, breathe deeply. I guided her through a meditation. And look at that woman at the bar. What do you see? And she said, oh, my God. It was 11 in the morning. This woman was on her third martini. She says, I see this white, cloudy stuff above her body and off to the side. What is it? I said, well, that's her energy body. It knows that she's going to die soon and is getting ready to leave. And the interviewer asked me, what are you going to do? I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the front desk and find out what flight she's on to be sure I'm not in the same flight. Wow. 
you can't go around fixing everything you see that's wrong. Uh-huh. So I've learned to temper it, to turn it off, to turn it on when I need to, when I can be of service to someone mm-hmm. and not out of curiosity. So I don't go prying into people's energy, but if I'm asked for help and if I can be of help, then, and a lot of the information I get is, is of two types. One is nutritional, saying, uh-huh. hey, you're eating something you're allergic to. You got to find out what it is. And the other one is the generational. Frequently, they're generational curses that are passed down from mother to daughter. These are the stories that run in families. And I'll see the great-grandmother, how she was afflicted and trying to protect her child and passed on this sense of affliction that runs in the family now. Can you define a curse? Because it is a language that maybe the listeners might need to know a little bit more about what is that generational curse. Yeah, you've, we've all heard somebody say, well, heart disease runs in my family, right? Yep. That, that's a genetic curse. Right. So it's something that you tune into, you know, it's like my mom was a Holocaust survivor and I, I definitely feel some of the same feelings she had without me even knowing why. This is what we call epigenetics today, which are greater than genetics. They're the family dramas and stories that are inherited in the family. But what we commonly believe is a curse is someone trying to harm you. Oh, I see. And sending negative energy and toxic energies your way that can penetrate your field and trigger disease processes that are latent in you. And I'll give you an example of how, I, when I was a young man studying anthropology, I got a call from the foundation that sponsored my research. And they said, Alberto, we need an anthropologist in Haiti for just for 10 days because the anthropologist got sick and we're finishing a study. And I said, I don't know anything about Haiti. It was about voodoo. I don't know anything about Haiti. You know, my specialty is the upper Amazon and the Andes. They go, yes, we're reviewing your grant proposal right now. And I said, okay, when do you need me in Haiti? (laughs) And three days later, I landed in Haiti and joined the team. It was an anthropology team. And I met the old voodoo priest. And voodoo is one of the great healing arts, extraordinary healing art. But since the French were the such horrible slave drivers, the average lifespan of the black slave in Haiti was two years. The slave in the United States was 28 years and Brazil was 35 years, which is why in Brazil there's this beautiful mixture of colors and tones. But Haiti, the French were ruthless and they were using voodoo to get back at their very harsh mm-hmm. masters, but amazing healing practice. And I asked the and the voodoo priest, the old man, how is it that you hurt someone? He says, I don't hurt anybody. Well, how is it that if you need to bring back a balance to, to someone who may be hurting your people, how do you do it? He says, oh, it's simple. I take my rattle or my leaves, my bundle of leaves. I call that person's spirit when they're sleeping and the spirit will come and I'll look at their energy field. The spirit is just the energy field. I'll look at the energy field and I'll see, ah, There's this dark energy over here and it's over the heart area. Let's give it a little bit of power. Bam, and they wake up that program, that computer program. And two weeks later, that person has a heart attack. And I go, wow, that's amazing. And how do you heal someone? They says, we heal them the same way. I take my rattle out. I call their spirit when they're asleep or even when they're awake. And if I see a dark bundle of energy in their field, I take that dark bundle of energy out before it has a chance to sink roots into an organ. Mm, That's amazing. So I asked the old man, so you don't think that that energy is about heart disease? He says, no. 
that energy just goes to the weakest organ in the system and it affects that organ. So the same strategies for were used for healing someone or for hurting someone. Mm -hmm. When you hurt someone, it's like double-clicking on a computer program in your screen. It takes over your screen. You have a heart attack and you die two weeks later. To heal someone, you remove the dark energy and you set it free. And a lot of these dark energies, what the Chinese call stale qi, is simply trauma. These are the memories of trauma, of things that happened to us or that happened to our great-grandmother who might have been in Auschwitz or who might have been a survivor of. Mm -hmm. And these are the generational, the epigenetic stories. And so the shamanic mythology, the Western medical tradition has a great way of explaining and diagnosing these things, but they can't fix them. And the shamanic, they can't explain them, but they know how to interact with the world of energy. Right. So do you think your job is to translate that? Because i that's what I get from you, you know, certainly from your books. It is like you are this bridge. My native, my name that the indigenous people gave me was the star bridge or the man bridge. But my work is not only to translate, but to combine with the neuroscience. Remember, I, I trained in, yeah. in science and I ran a small neuroscience laboratory. So we combine it with cutting edge brain science. Because the ancients didn't, for example, the ancients talk about chakras. You know about the seven chakras in the sure, body, right? Absolutely. And somebody asked me, do shamans have chakras? I thought chakras were Hindu. And I asked them, do, do Africans have livers? I thought livers were European. <laughs> no, I know there's commonalities all around the world. See, but the word chakra means a wheel. Mm -hmm. The ancients perceived these wheels of light and they call them chakra. They didn't know physiology or anatomy, but a chakra is actually a disturbance in the energy field because every chakra is where you have an endocrine gland and a nerve plexus coinciding. Endocrine glands produce hormones and a bundle of nerves that are electrical communication. So these are the two communication systems in the body. One of them is slow and chemical, which are hormones, but you know how quickly they work. And the other works at the speed of light the nervous system. And when the two coincide, they create this disturbance that the ancients called the chakra. So my job is to understand the anatomy, the physiology, and the brain science behind it. So when somebody works to balance your chakras, you're balancing your hormones and balancing your nervous system. It all comes together. Yeah, this very mysterious, mystical language of chakras, they're connected to biology. That's my job. Yeah, and I love that. You are. You are the bridge. That is so true. Um, you are a lineage keeper from the Cairo Nation. Is that correct? You know, I, I have been initiated and by the shamans, yes. And I hold that position. It's like, it's like having a PhD. Right. And I, I think it's beautiful. It's like you were given this to teach others. And I know I've met some of the shaman because I've been to your place in Chile and I've been to a number of your workshops and they love you. Now, Four Winds... You are training modern shaman. Yep, that's what I do. Modern shamans that are versed in the ancient ways of energy. Because in the West, we ignore the energy field. When psychology and medicine tried to become scientific, they became scientific with the science of the 1800s, when we didn't know about the quantum field. We didn't know about energy fields. So today, we, we have the opportunity to combine quantum physics, quantum biology, and the neuroscience with this ancient wisdom practices. What the shamans had was, how do you work with it? How do you do it? 
What we have in the West is the explanation for how it works. It's the difference between information and wisdom. Information is knowing that water is H2O, but wisdom is being able to make it rain. Wow. Information <laughs> is knowing that you have this condition, this illness. You know, there are 155,000 diagnostic diseases in the West today. One thing is knowing the diagnosis you have, and the other one is being able to heal. We can bring that wisdom together with the ancient practices, and we are energy beings. The future of medicine is energy medicine, and that's what I do today is to train energy medicine practitioners around the world. Love it. Love it. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears with a segment we're calling the Tea Time After Party, brought to you by Magic Hour Teas. Magic Hour Teas are delicious and fabulous. I drink them daily and even have a 10% off code just for you. So for more information and to get the code, just go to itwpodcast.com forward slash tea. So, Alberto, this is where we kick up the fun a little and have more of a woo-wild conversation. You ready? Absolutely. Here we go. If you could have a magic power, what would it be and what would you use it for? If I could have a magic power, I would ask for tolerance. And I would use it to, to listen more carefully to people. I think that listening, having someone feel that they've been heard is so important. I would ask for greater patience and tolerance. Wow, that's magic. I think I might need that too. (laughs) (laughs) At least my husband would say I would need that magic power too. (laughs) Listening, right, I love it. Okay, if you could make a magic potion to give to society, what would you make and what would it do? I think that um, I would give them the death potion. The death potion? The death potion. (laughs) And I would mix it very, very carefully and notice this blue colors and the red colors because red can be very poisonous in nature and offer it to humanity and ask them to make a choice. Do you want to drink it or do you want to set it aside? And if you're going to be destroying the planet and destroying our children's legacy, go ahead and drink it. Get over with now. If not, let's put it aside and drink the elixir of life that's being offered to us all the time by nature. Wow. That's, 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 that's heavy. That's great. Um, here's, here's my favorite one. You meet an extraterrestrial. They are deciding to move here. What would you tell them about living on Earth? I would say, hi, Colette. So nice to see you. (laughs) And, you know, you've got to be careful where you settle here on the earth. You want to come up with a good relationship with the local inhabitants. And above all, know that this is a planet that welcomes visitors, but only if you want to become a permanent resident, you have to apply. (laughs) Which means that you have to be contributing to the future of this planet. And perhaps not just sharing technology, but sharing the big heartedness that perhaps your people developed that we have had a hard time developing because we still need enemies in our planet. Maybe you have transcended the need for enemies and can practice love in a fuller way that we can. 
Let's see if you'll actually do this one, all right? I would like to know the name of your first pet and the color of your underwear, because that is going to be your spirit guide's name. Well, my first pet was a, um, was a little crab, one of these little crabs that have a the little house that they live in, because we lived by the ocean, and I would go and I would collect these hermit crabs. So these hermit crabs I really admired because they had their own house, they felt protected, but they, could, they were pretty agile. They moved pretty quickly for carrying a house in their backs. Wow. And they loved to be right at the edge of the sea where the waves washed over the rocks. And that seemed like a very nice place to be between the sea and the land. And its name? And yeah, they, I gave them names. What was its name? What was your first name you gave your pet? Angelina. Angelina and the color of your underwear, please. The color of Angelina's underwear. No, yours. (laughs) (laughs) Angelina didn't wear any underwear. Okay, so Angelina Nude is the name of your spirit guide. (laughs) Yeah, Angelina, no, it was not nude. It was Angelina Raw. Oh, Angelina Raw, okay. Angelina Raw. (laughs) Well, you have quite the name for your spirit guide. All right. This is one of the decks that you and I created together. It's called The Shaman's Dream. I would like to pull a card and just close up our conversation and see what spirit has to say to you and I about this conversation and what else we could reflect on. And it's the hollow bone. It's all about teachability. Do you want to say something quickly about that? Yeah, this is such an appropriate card. I love that deck, by the way, that we did. Me too. And it's a, um, this is a dream. We're caught in a dream right now that for many people has become a nightmare. And for some people, it becomes a creative dream. And you can switch it. That's like changing fate into destiny. We can make that switch. And the card deck is very good for doing that. And the hollow bone is where you allow the wind, which is spirit, to play you to play, to flow through you where you offer no resistance. And in the process, you make music, you make beauty out of it. Not suffering, not moaning, not how, no, you empty yourself and allow the wind to, to fill you. And the wind, remember, this, the wind is spirit. Spirit is the breath, inspire, expire. And the word for spirit is, the wind is the word for spirit. Yeah, in spiritus. What a beautiful way to end this conversation. Alberto, thank you so much for being here. And for more information on the Four Winds Society and Alberto's work, infinite wealth of knowledge and books, ancient wisdom teachings, and more, please visit thefourwinds.com. Thank you so much, Alberto Bilaldo. So I guess when I say, what did we learn? I know what I learned today. I had a great reminder that we are all more than we know and that if we were to surrender to what life really has to offer, be willing to be teachable, to learn what the ancients knew, apply it to our lives, we could be so much more than we could possibly conceive. You've been listening to Inside the Wooniverse. I'm your host, Colette Baron-Reed. Until next time, be well. Time to share the way we love Become the ones we're dreaming of 
You've been listening to Inside the Wooniverse with Colette Baron-Reed. This episode was recorded at Wooniversal Network Studio by Chris Dupuis. A special thanks to our executive producer, Connie Deletti, and our producer and story editor, Julie Fink. Audio post and supervision by Michael Seifert and David Shaw at Sumo Recording. Original music written and performed by Michael Seifert. Original music, Truth Begins, by Colette Baron-Reed and Eric Ross. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or leave us a rating on our Spotify show page. Do you have a question about something you've heard here today for Colette? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at colettebaronreed.com and your question could appear on a future episode. If you love what you've heard here today, we have so much more to offer. You can access our bonus content, keep up to date with new episode releases, featured guests, and prize giveaways, all by clicking on the link in our description or by visiting us at itwpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us next time Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine.